Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Uh, hello again and welcome to Restoring America. It's uh, the last day of February 2015. And I am... Uh, reading through trying to finish up a book called The Grand Design Exposed, which is an alternative view that you probably hadn't thought about, I hadn't thought about before I was introduced to it, uh, about the influence of the Catholics in early America. In early America, the Catholics basically were outlawed, except in Maryland. In Maryland, they put a beachhead, they, they came and set up a a Catholic colony, at least this was their intention originally, and uh, there were ups and downs in the Maryland colony, but they got a foothold in early America. Now, this is what they had been trying, this is the conflict that had been raging in Europe and especially in England uh, came over uh, across the Atlantic to America. And The Catholics had already uh, established a beachhead, a a strong beachhead in Mexico and all along the uh, California coast with the missions that they have there, which would be another very interesting uh, set of history to study. But we're focusing on, uh, in this, we're focusing on the American Revolution and an alternative uh, view of the American Revolution that you probably, if you're like I am, you probably hadn't thought about, uh, and that is the the inroads or at least the efforts of the Catholics, the Jesuits, to get a foothold in America, in the American colonies. And most of the colonies, it was very clearly stated in their constitutions in their colonial constitutions that you had to be Protestant just like in England to hold public office except in Maryland in Maryland they had this concept of religious liberty and for them that meant religious liberty for the Catholics so that uh, the Catholics would get a foothold in what was going on in America and this influence uh, as he has been this this uh, John Daniel in his book, The Grand Design Exposed, has been tracing basically two streams of thought, and that is the Masons, the Freemasons that go back to the Knights Templar, and also the Jesuits. And uh, the Jesuit, what happened, uh, according to this book, is that the Jesuits... Uh, got in control of the Freemasons through the Illuminati and used the Freemasons to infiltrate uh, areas like England or America where it was they could not do that openly. So they used this as a front organization to get in and do uh, their infiltrating. And uh, the education part of it came in France uh, many of the early uh, of these early families, like the Carroll family and some of the others, sent their kids, sent their children over to France to be educated in Jesuit universities. And the Jesuit universities uh, just had a major uh, intellectual impact, influence in France and Europe during this time, which led uh, eventually to the French Revolution which uh, he has a chapter in here about that, but I decided not to read that. It's just so long, and uh, it's a very interesting uh, set of history uh, that you ought to study the French Revolution also. But we're focusing on the American Revolution here, an alternative view of the American Revolution that 
maybe you have not thought about, at least consider this. I'm not saying this was the only way to view the American Revolution, but it's one that you should consider and think about and realize that not e- not everyone back at that time, not everyone who signed the Declaration, not everyone that uh, we call founding fathers was necessarily a dedicated uh, Protestant Christian. Just remember that as we... Uh, as we read through this. This section is called Freemasonry uh, woven into every fabric called American, at least at this time. They're saying that. Not surprisingly, the Freemasonry so prevalent in Amherst Army, in the British Army in America at this time, was transmitted to the colonial officers and units serving with it. American commanders and personnel pounced on whatever opportunities arose to become not just comrades in arms, but also fellow Freemasons. Fraternal bonds were thus forged between regular British troops and their colonial colleagues. Remember that these men were trained during the French-Indian War, which was just about 10 years before the American Revolution. It's not that long. I mean, 10 years ago seems like yesterday, the older you get. So... Just uh, just remember that that a lot of the uh, the leaders of the uh, the colonial army were trained and fought in the British troops as Brit as British officers were trained like George Washington and some of these other men that we will mention. Okay, what uh, fraternal bonds were thus forged between regular British troops and their colonial colleagues. Lodges proliferated, Freemasonic ranks and titles were conferred like medals and uh, like promotions. Men such as Israel Putnam, Benedict Arnold of of infamy, Joseph Fry, Hugh Mercer, John Nixon, David Wooster, and of course George Washington himself, not only won their military spurs, they, they were also if they were not already brethren, inducted into Freemasonry. And those who did not themselves become practicing Freemasons were still constantly exposed to the influence of Freemasonry, which spilled over from the British Army to merge with the fledgling lodges already established in the colonies, or being established. By this means, Freemasonry came to suffuse the whole of colonial administration, society, and culture. I'm not sure how much, how true that statement is, that it was just uh, all through colonial culture, but probably the leadership of it uh, was very familiar with Freemasons. I'm sure they were still very dedicated uh, Protestant Christian people in America, and one one that most people do not even uh, doesn't even rate, uh, register on the radar is the Scotch Irish, the pres- Scotch Irish Presbyterians, that b- at the time of the Revolution were uh, one third of the American population, and yet this is not even on the radar in most history books, even from the ones. Uh, like David Barton and others, uh, David Barton and uh, uh, there's another fellow, what's his name, Peter Marshall, that has some uh, very good uh, history books on on early America, the colonial, the the founding of America, the light and the glory, which his take on it is that it it was a Christian endeavor. It was a totally a Christian endeavor. And you should read those. You should get a feel for that because there's some, there is that in the history. They show that very clearly. Read uh, Peter Marshall's books, uh, The Light and the Glory, the next one. He has a series of three books that takes you from Columbus up through, uh, I think, the Civil War, up through that. So uh, I would encourage you to consider those books as well. That's another stream of thought about what this is what came to America and there's there's uh, background for that that you need to consider. So I'm not saying that what we're reading here is the only one and it kind of rankles me sometimes that when they make these broad general statements about 
like this one. By this means, Freemasonry came to suffuse, not just the idea of it's, it's just all through colonial administration, society, and culture. And it certainly, uh, I'm not sure that's totally true. Of course, we weren't there. I don't know. Yeah, Lori, you're on, aren't you? Do you have a thought about what I what I just said there? Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I do, Alan. I'm I'm glad you interjected that, and especially here because uh, last week when you did this, I actually had some thoughts I want to get into. That's right along with these lines. Go right um, ahead. And take that, your, take your time and do that right now. If you can remember, okay. it. I, my problem is well, that I. I want to say something, but I forgot it. <laughs> right. But I remember well, that so, I want to say something. <laughs> yeah, so, so is mine. That, that's why I write lists down. <laughs> you know, what, one of the things is, is that we, we, you know, we, we really tend these days to paint with a broad brush. We, we want to put everybody and everything into a box, and people can't be put in a box. God no. certainly cannot be put in a box as his imagers. We cannot be put in a box. So it's absurd even to try to put people in a box. Yeah. But the, yeah. The, the, reason, the reason I'm concerned about this is because, like you said, when they painted that this is the way it was, a lot of people take that to heart, with, you know, that have, you know, maybe you're hearing this for the first time or, or they've looked on slanted things. And I, w- I want to address a couple of issues, you know, <clears throat> and the reason I want to do that is, Alan, I, I think a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of things you you had mentioned Chris Pinto some of the stuff that he's done and look I I think he's a great researcher I think he's put out a lot of great work and uncovered a lot of stuff but I also think that 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 some of these lead people to think that the entire inception of the United States was doomed to fail it was planned that way and that all of the framers founders whatever we want to call them were all corrupt to the bone. And that is just simply not the case. <clears throat> and, I'd, I, and I'd like to make a couple points. You know, one of the things constantly brought up is Thomas Jefferson and, and George Washington owned slaves. Okay, yes, yes, they did. Yes, they absolutely did. Is it wrong? I would say absolutely. Uh, you know, we can debate that in the Old Testament on and on. But yes, I, I think that's wrong. But the bottom line is they were British colonies at the time, and Slavery was not outlawed in England until 1833, okay? So it's no wonder that they would have had slaves. That's just the way it was. There was a huge slave slave trade. As a matter of fact, jump forward to the Civil War just a a moment. The only thing that was larger uh, uh, gross national product, the term we use today, than the slave market at that time was the land itself, the entire United States. So th- this is something that was already incorporated. This is not like George and, and Thomas were you know, unusually evil men. That was the practice at the time. If we like it or agree with it or not, it, that, that simply was the practice. And I think that's important for people to understand instead of going, oh, these were evil, wicked men because they had that. It was being done in England, and that was the law, and that's, that's what they were going by. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, <clears throat> Go ahead. And, and I don't know. If, oh, okay. Uh, you know, another thing, too, is is King George. You know, a lot of this is, that you know, th- this whole uh, uh, revolution was just fomented by uh, people that had this devious plot, and it, there was this unwitting population that went along just because. And, and yeah, there's, there's some truth to it. But I want to throw a couple things out about King George in England. King George actually hired French Catholic mercenaries to put down the revolution. And, and I find it very interesting that though King George in England at the time was Protestant, they did not have a problem hiring Catholic mercenaries to come do their dirty work. And this yeah. illustrates to me that, that at the tippy top, they don't really care. They'll use whoever they got to to get the agenda done, and that's another thing too. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's uh, right. They don't. Yeah. They, it doesn't matter to them, you know. They're all just like, it's all like a herd of cattle, you know. Yep, and, and I'm, I'm I'm about half done, but I really did have some points, and you had that company oh, come yeah. in, and I've been chomping. Okay, the other one that's brought up is that you know this this whole uh, French Catholic training, uh, and and you know how how these the French Enlightenment and and all this kind of stuff. Well, 
we have to understand that at that time, until very recently, Protestant Reformation starting, but it was still entrenched, that the French and Catholic had basically a stranglehold, a monopoly, if you will, on on the training. So it's it's no wonder that they would have gotten this type of training and, and indoctrination. And another one here is is, is taxes. You know, it, it amazes me how, how people will just flippantly say, well, it wasn't about taxes. That was just the official thing, da 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 Well, yes and no. There were a lot of other circumstances, I'll grant you. But one of the things we have to keep in mind is that we did not have an income tax in this country until 1913. Yeah. Taxes up until that point were on tariffs, import taxes, that type of thing. And that is how the federal government ran. Because the federal government was very, very small. Its intention was to remain small. In fact, if you look in the Constitution, you'll find that there's a clause in there about basically cons- uh, uh, the Congress will meet once a year, at least once a year. And that's because they were actually afraid at the time that once they uh, – uh, uh, what do they call that? Closed Congress. I'm, I'm, I'm losing the uh, – adjourned that, – that they would never reconvene. And that's why yeah. that was put in there. That, that was the mindset there. Um, at that time, and I, again, I think that's important, and, and I, I am getting almost done. Uh, what, wait, oh. wait, let me ask. Now, let me make sure I understood you right here. You mean to tell me that there was not an income tax for until 1913, and America still functioned? Am I understanding that right? Yes, you're understanding that <laughs> absolutely correctly. The the, yeah. the federal government was funded basically with imports and tariffs, which we have undone here with most favored trade status and this kind of stuff, uh, and and put it on the burden of the people where it used to be. Yes, uh, George Washington, you know, uh, uh, trade with 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 all countries, no entangling alliances. And that's what they did. They said, okay, yes, we can make a shovel here. If you can make a shovel cheaper, we'll do it. But we're gonna we're gonna put a tariff on this, yeah. and that is. I mean, it, it's that's kind of a a, a, a light, uh, cursory comment on that. But yes, effectively, yes, that 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 was the case. Yeah, people. I mean, today we can't even hardly conce- conceive of that being the case, you know, but, uh, because of how we've been trained and conditioned, you know. Go ahead. Yeah, that's that's why I bring that that up. Uh, another thing, there, there, there was there are comments frequently made about you know again these unwitting dupes, how they were just you know caught up in this this vortex and had no idea what was going on. And again, I, I don't want to play down that there was an undercurrent, there was an agenda being cooked, and yes, it was top down. But you know you don't get the people to go along unless there's a problem. That's right. Unless they're struggling right. for something. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter really if it was about taxes or religious freedom or both or neither. If people have a perceived problem and it's bad enough, they will get behind it. That's right. That's right. And that's to me one of the one of the things that I I didn't understand and I still not don't understand it real well. But the influence and this is one of the black holes. In this time, the influence of the Scotch-Irish, the, the Scottish Covenanters that came uh, by the thousands to America that had this, I mean, they had this raw in their emotions that thousands of them had been tortured and put to death by the English throne. And they were they were the common they were one third of the population in America at the at the revolution time you know and and they were a lot of the people that came and fought so you you got to put that in the mix that they were in there and they knew what the uh, they knew this process of standing up against the king of England. Because they had been through it with Charles II and James II, and they had, I mean, their grand folks had been killed by it, you know? And yep. so that was, it was raw in their emotion, and they, they fought that, you know? So they, that was something that uh, they would, their ears would pick, you know, prick up, and they would be ready to fight. 
because they're not going to go back through that again, you know. So that's well, another I, that's another part of the mix there, the soup. Well, that that is so funny you'd bring that up because that was actually my very next point. Funny enough, again, people don't understand this 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 battle that was going on uh, in Europe at that time that had come to America, and some of that was is you you, you American choice. You could be Catholic because there was that push going on. You could be magisterial. You and I have discussed that with magisterial versus radical reformers because that battle was going on with Protestants and Protestants. Yeah. Uh, and then you had, of course, these reformers. And then, as you mentioned, these Scottish covenanters and so on and so forth, plus a lot of the people from England that had been through that whole Anglican magisterial uh, battle there. And so that's another thing that, that you're absolutely right that I, I think that is it's it's a, a, a prey in the mix, I guess you could you could call it. So there's yeah. a lot of stuff that's going on at this time and a lot of people are being pulled in sixteen different directions, much like today actually. Different subjects, maybe a little more complicated if we want to think of it that way. I don't personally, but but that's what it is. And then there's misinformation, you know, there's there's a, a propaganda going on i mean the whole thing like we got today i mean it's not any different yeah it is it's it's very similar and i mean another thing another uh piece in the mix there is the the baptist culture the the congregational there's a distinction i mean you've you've emphasized that the magisterial which is anglican the the anglican uh structure organizational structure of their churches the anglican which is top down uh like that the king of england you know but then over here you have the presbyterians which was kind of a it was a a, a group of people that were a group of churches that kind of worked together in an area and they would meet they would have conferences they would meet together the leaders would kind of uh, be the leaders of their of all of these churches in this area. That would pre, that's Presbyterian, and then you have congregational uh, structure, which is each each local church is independent, independent, and so there's all these different uh, structures, church. Uh, uh, structures and uh, cultures that are all vying for they're all protecting their own turf to make sure that they will be uh, protected or have their own uh, independence to pursue God as they understand and uh, they understand the Bible you know these are very dedicated people you know so all of that's in the soup and you've got to you, that's what I think too. You can't just say everybody was like this. It, it's not true. Yeah, yeah. So I, let me I uh, more, go ahead. <laughs> okay, well, I, I've only got two more points. One's kind of just a side note, and then the other one I think will tie right back into where where you were at. Uh, one of them is this this thing about with natural law that that you brought up, and yeah, you know it, it amazed me. John Locke. I, I hear people. John Locke. I hear, and it actually predates John Locke, funny enough. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's, that's right. You know, a, 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 a lot of people, uh, they want to talk about God's law and man's law as though man's law is automatically inherently bad somehow. Well, no, if, it, if it's following God's law, it's absolutely good. And this natural law, as it was used in, I'm not talking about today, as it was used and understood in Locke's time, in Washington and Jefferson's time, to say natural law meant God-given, if they, yeah. if they put it there or not. When, when you read the writings, it's just absolutely abundantly clear. I mentioned to you, I did, though I didn't get out on air, it is uh, nature's God and God's nature. They're, yeah. they're, they're inextricably linked. It, inalienable God-given rights is, is what that was. And yeah. the, the very last point that, that I want to bring up that I think will tie right back in is – you know, one one of the other things too, when we start looking at what this was, what was it taxes? You know, was it this religion? One of the things is you you mentioned last week the colonists viewed themselves as 
British citizens. And as such, they thought they were entitled, and I believe rightly so, to all the privileges, immunities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, of being a British citizen. But they really were not treated that way in many, many respects. They were not allowed to have uh, uh, their their local governments. They, they would have, you know, assemblies just disband and stuff. that didn't go on in England. And they thought they should have been treated as though they were in England because it was a, it was a vassal. It was a, it was a colony, a set of colonies of England. And that's one of the things, too. They were being taxed without representation. A lot of this was being done without representation that if they'd have been on the mainland would never have flown, and that's what happened. There was this second-class citizenship in, in their mind's eye compared to England, and, of course, England was just viewing it as, you know, these colonists are, are getting mighty uppity and snooty. So there was that going on, too, and I think that kind of ties in, you know, back in with where you were at with a lot of this stuff that's going on. Yeah, that's very good. That's very good. Yeah. Uh, so all of this is going in together, and uh, just we just need to try to understand as much as we can. I mean, there's so much. There's no way that we can understand it, everything that's going on way back there, but uh, we can get somewhat of a feel for it, I think. So let me uh, continue reading here. Uh, It's in the Grand Design Exposed, page 278. But it was not just Freemasonry in itself, not just the rites, rituals, traditions, opportunities, and benefits of Freemasonry. These were just Freemasonry's incentives, their promotional motivation devices to get a person hooked on the brotherhood, a mentality, a hierarchy of attitudes and values that Freemasonry wanted to get disseminated or spread abroad. Most colonists did not actually read Locke, Hume, Voltaire, Diderot, or Rousseau any more than most British soldiers did. They did not have to. It was through the lodges that these currents of thought that were associated with such philosophers became universally acceptable. There's that universally accessible uh, concept universally also. It was largely through the lodges that ordinary colonists learned about the rights of man and the concept of perfectibility of society. This this comes back from the Jesuits. The perfectibility of man of reaching a state of perfection himself without God. This was the concept of that. But the big batch or deception was that the ordinary members of Freemasonry were purposely led to believe certain lofty concepts and idealisms, such as liberty and freedom, to mean one thing. But to the Jesuits of the Roman Church, the those hidden superiors at the apex of Freemasonic power it meant quite the opposite. This is a common thing. What was liberty and freedom to a Protestant was anathema to Rome. So this is, we hear these terms like uh, freedom of religion, and we take that to mean what we want. Well, that's not necessarily what Rome wants. Rome looks at that a totally different way than Protestants might. So just keep this in mind. As with any conspiracy, true motives are always concealed until the ultimate or the appropriate groundwork can be laid so as to assure success. The American Revolution then, from its earliest beginning, was in every sense a process of evolution. And even though it is true and it is argued that there were great underlying conditions that seemed to invite revolution, such as From the very beginning, extremely liberal charters and privileges were given to encourage colonists to settle the American wilderness, combined with England's lackness to enforce colonial laws, which gave colonists a keen feeling of semi-independence. These factors only became assets and tools in the minds of conspirators lurking in the background. To have suggested separation and independence to a people who were quite content as they were would have been sheer nonsense. As a cover-up to disguise their true intentions to both the colonial population and England, 
revolutionary leaders were always careful to extend their veiled conciliatory overtures. But from the outset, it was designed that the colonies be totally independent from England. I'm not sure totally from the outset, but maybe so. Um, Go ahead, Lori. If I could just make a quick comment. That that right there is a, is a, is a perfect example of that because yeah. we have, you know, it, it's not, again, we try to put everything in a box and paint with a broad brush. Both those conditions were actually true. Yes, at one time, England got to the point where it was ignoring the colonies, basically. As long as they sent their ships over, they, they got their booty and it went back, everything was fine and well and good. But when the colonies started to have some kind of infrastructure and, and production capabilities and actually started making money and some kind of a profit, that's when they started being subjugated, making being made second-class citizens. And that's, I think, one of the big places that people get confused and want to put it in one box or the other, paint with this broad brush. Yeah, yeah. I think I agree with that, yeah. And you can't just do that, you know. There's not just one one way to look at it you know and because there weren't just one group of people there yeah yeah uh to most to most modern americans who have already who have largely lost touch with early american history of 100 or 200 or 300 or 400 years ago it's hard to perceive the predominant and on grand public occasions very prominent roles that freemasonry has had to play in the nation's past, especially when Freemasonry today has chosen to take a very low public profile. But there is no question that Boston Masons not only organized but took part in the Boston Tea Party. Daniel Webster described the Green Dragon Tavern where Boston Masons met as the headquarters of the revolution. Paul Revere was a master mason, as was every general officer in the Revolutionary Army, starting with Joseph Warren, grandmaster of the Massachusetts Grand Lodge, the first to die at at Bunker Hill. 2,000 more masons were among officers of all grades, such as Colonel Isaac Frank, aide-de-camp to George Washington, and Major Benjamin Nones on General Lafayette's staff. In Virginia, when the, when the members of the Alexandria Lodge No. 22 declared themselves independent of any foreign jurisdiction, they named George Washington as first master of the lodge. In 1780, when the idea was suggested that the Grand Lodge of Pennsylvania of creating a Grand Master of all the Grand Lodges formed or to be found, formed in the United States, George Washington was unanimously elected to, fi- to fill the post. But the, com, the, com, the commander-in-chief, too busy with the war, was obliged to decline. When peace from the Revolutionary War finally came, it was the Grand Master of New York's Grand Lodge, Robert Livingston, who administered to George Washington his oath of office as the first president of the United States. Uh, Lori has mentioned before that there were other presidents uh, after during the time of the Articles of Confederation, go ahead, uh, Lori. Well, that's that's what I wanted to say is is that 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 is a that is a, an intentional. I'm just going to say that's intentional. Anybody's research that deep cannot possibly miss ten previous presidents under the Articles of Confederation. Yeah. And that was not at the behest of of, of England. That that was something that the, the colonies had done and gotten together, and they had elected pre- the president did one year terms. So that was already in place, and what they're trying to do is is make it to this just this this Freemasonic conspiracy, and they put Georgie Boy right at the front lines, but they neglect that there were ten presidents before that. So they were all, and this was where some of that tension began with England because England was seeing that there was this structure of this this governmental body taking place, and that's where they didn't like it because they were getting the infrastructure and, again, production. And that's when England started cracking down, which is what led to the Revolutionary War, not just, poof, we got a bunch of Freemasons and we're going to put Georgie Boy in charge, and then we're off and running. So that, that, yeah. that's a misrepresentation there. Yeah, that's what – when I said that – when I read that, I thought, well, that's not right. That's not – 
And this is what this is the story we're told today that George Washington was the first president. I I didn't realize that till you you really have pointed that out to me uh, during the Articles of Confederation during that early stages of setting up a, a government. You know, so uh, when the cornerstone of the nation's new capital was laid on uh, September the eighteenth, seventeen ninety three. The ceremony was performed in concert with the Grand Lodge of Maryland and several lodges under the jurisdiction of Washington's Lodge 22, with the new president clothing himself for the occasion in a Masonic apron and other insignia of the Brotherhood. At George Washington's burial on his estate at Mount Vernon, six of the pallbearers and three of the officiating clergymen were Brother Masons from Alexandria Lodge 22 where the mystic funeral rites of masonry were performed by the new Grand Master of the Lodge. One by one, Washington's Masonic brethren cast upon his beer the ritual sprig of acacia, Osirian symbol of the resurrection of the spirit. On the coffin, with two cross swords, was placed the Masonic capron specially made for Washington by the Marquis de Lafayette. Within hours of Washington's death, his fellow Mason representative John Marshall of Virginia, later the country's first chief justice, rose in the house and moved that a monument be raised to the man, first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. To launch the greatest Masonic obelisk, obelisk monument in the world to Washington's memory on the 4th of July, 1848, a 24,500-pound block of Maryland marble was donated by Freemason Thomas Symington. For the ceremony, stands were built around the site. This is the Washington Monument, as it's called or known. Among the spectators were past and present presidents Martin Van Buren, Millard Fillmore, as well as Mrs. Alexander Hamilton and Mrs. John Quincy Adams. Benjamin B. French, Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Free and Accepted Masons of the District of Columbia, deposited articles in a cavity beneath the stone, using the same gavel and wearing the same Masonic apron and sash worn by George Washington when he laid the cornerstone of the Capitol in 1793. This was uh, along, they kept the apron there. Upon the completion of the great Masonic obelisk, Another appropriate uh, Masonic ceremony was required. One thing he doesn't mention here, right here in this chapter, I think it's in another chapter, is that uh, the setup of Washington with the Capitol Dome and the, uh, what do they call that, the, uh, the open space there the, between the Capitol Dome and the Washington Monument, and then on down the Lincoln Memorial. If you've ever been there, it's beautiful. It's a, a beautiful thing. From above, it looks like a cross. It looks like a cross. In fact, in some parts, it's especially a cross, just like a Catholic cross. But if you compare this with uh, the Vatican in Rome, it's, it's eerily similar to that uh, setup. Very... Uh, and people need to just be hit with that similarity there. Hey, okay. Um, Go ahead, uh, Lori. Two, two quick ones, just kind of a little trivial thing, uh, and then there's a point I just want to interject real quick. One, one of them is is where it talks about putting that acacia sprig, to, to, uh, I don't know that they said in there, to the nose. That's actually discussed in Scripture in Ezekiel 8.17, and it talks about they put the branch in uh, to their nose, if you look up branch, it, it, it's a twig. And that's exactly what they do with these funerals. They, they hold this acacia sprig up to their nose. That's what that little slit in the tuxedo's for, the yeah. lapel slit. We put a carnation in there, but that's not what that was designed for. But I want to I wanna point out, this, this is my, my main point. You know, one of the things is this with, with Masons, and, and, and again, they make it out to be just this Masonic conspiracy. And I, again, I'm not saying there's nothing there. George Washington renounced his, his Masonic ship, uh, and, and he decided because the Illuminati 
uh, he used other words as well, but had, had infiltrated it, and he said no one was more aware of that than, than that he was. And there's another problem. I want people to think just on a base. You know, there were Masons over in England, too. You know, oh, when yeah. you talk about this Boston, Boston Tea Party and how all these people doing this were all Masons, yes, they were, yes, they were. But if you look a little bit deeper, you'll find that they were dressed up as Indians. Why? To blame it on the Indians? No, because they were hiding their own identity for fear. So they were afraid already of English Freemasons at what they were doing. So, so it's not like these guys are all powerful just because you know they're third-degree Blue Lodge Masons. And, and that's yeah. another thing I think is just grossly overdone. So I'll leave it at yeah. that. I, th- I agree with you about that, too. Yeah. Okay, uh, let me see. Upon the completion of the great Masonic obelisk, another appropriate Masonic ceremony was required. On the on December the sixth, eighteen eighty four, when I guess the uh, Washington Monument was dedicated, thousands held their breath as they gazed it up from five hundred feet below to watch Master Mason P. N. McLaughlin to project the project superintendent successfully placed the aluminum capstone atop the pyramid eon, the the obelisk. The American flag was unfurled, the crowd raised a cheer, cannons boomed out, a hundred gun salute, and all was ready for the dedication on Washington's birthday, February the 21st, 1885. Again, with great public fanfare, dedication day began with a short address by Senator Sherman of Ohio, then Myron Parker, most worshipful grandmaster of the Grand Lodge of Free and Accepted Masons, of the District of Columbia began the Masonic ceremonies, reminding the audience that the immortal Washington, himself a Freemason, had devoted his hand, his heart, his sacred honor to the cause of freedom of conscience, of speech, and of action, and that from his successful leadership the nation had arisen. In conclusion, Grand Chaplain of Masons brought out the ritual corn, wine, and oil. Then there was the official procession headed by the 21st president, Chester A. Arthur. When you come to realize the pre- that Freemasonry has been woven into every warp and woof of American society, it seems kind of ridiculous to say that there was not some kind of conspiracy going on. And that may be uh, the case. I still hesitate to say every warp and woof of American society. Uh, as we've been uh, analyzing or thinking through some of this. The next section is the Masonic Brotherhood, the major influence in the war's outcome. But the suspicion gets even stronger when you consider a key question that historians uh, seldom, if ever, seem to satisfactorily ask or explain. Like, why did the British contrive to lose the American War for Independence? For the war was not so much won by the American colonists, but rather lost by Britain more or less by default. When the British High Command set their minds to conquering France in North North America, her troops sallied forth and got the job done. However, when it came to the American War for Independence, it was strangely dilatory and apathetic. Opportunities were blandly ignored and operations were conducted with with an almost lackadaisical air. The war, quite simply, was not pursued with the kind of ruthlessness required for victory, the kind of ruthlessness displayed by the same commanders when fighting against adversaries other than American colonists. When the two battles that have been regarded as decisive, Saratoga and Yorktown, Neither of these engagements crippled or even seriously impaired Britain's capacity to continue fighting. Neither involved more than a fraction of the British troops deployed in North America. When Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown, the bulk of the British forces in North America was still intact, still well-placed to continue operations elsewhere, still strategically and numerically in position of advantage. There was in the American War for Independence no conclusive victory comparable to Waterloo, 
no turning point comparable to Gettysburg, no thorough, uh, and in the Civil War, I mean, the, the North just devastated the South. Uh, and it was not the same in the American War for Independence, is what he's saying. It seems almost uh-huh. as if... Yeah, go ahead, Lori. Well, I, I'm sorry, but I can't let that one slide either. See, there, there's just a logic flaw there. To say that it was not fought with the same veracity and tenacity as they did with France or other ones there, it, I, again, it's intellectually dishonest because you have to look... Anybody knows anything minor about warfare knows about logistics, supply lines. We're talking about a supply line that you could be across the English Channel in, in no time versus something that took months to cross. You had to feed those troops the whole way, stock up the, you know, whatever. I mean, it, it's just, it, it's an absurd comparison to say that okay. it wasn't because, yeah. Okay. Okay, so you, as you read through this, you just need to realize that this is not 100% necessarily accurate, his his analysis of it, his conclusions about it. So just keep that in mind. What the, what was this strange malady that came upon these professional soldiers just during the American War for Independence? Why did the British commanders Clinton and Cornwallis both fight under duress and extreme reluctance? And how, who repeatedly expressed his anger, his unhappiness, his frustration about the command with which he had been saddled? His brother Admiral Howe felt the same way. Amherst, even when King George III appointed him commander-in-chief in America and demanded that he take control of the war there, refused the king's direct order. It has been suggested that it was an extremely unpopular war because Englishmen were fighting against brother Englishmen. That may be true, but the logic does not hold water when you consider the American Civil War that was fought among even closer family ties but counted casualties greater than all the other American wars since then combined. So it must have been more to it than just that. Could the fighting sickness have been something contagious caught from perhaps the Masonic Brotherhood? This is This is the angle that John Daniel is presenting to us. Jesuit John Carroll comes home uh, to establish the American Catholic hierarchy. Now, John Carroll had been in, uh, in Europe, in Jesuit universities in Europe for 27 years. I believe it, 27. And came home as the first American archbishop, I believe would be uh, the right title. I may be mistaken about that. But he was the first official Uh, bishop, archbishop in America. Uh, It was in in the late spring of 1774, after some 26 26 years away from his native land, that Jesuit John Carroll returned to his home in Maryland. Fully trained and qualified, John Carroll was ready to assume his duties in the new republic for establishing the Catholic hierarchy in America. But that had to be, had to wait for now until independence from England had been won. In the meantime, in order to soothe both political and religious feelings among the French Catholics in Canada due to American revolutionary leaders' abusive response to England's Quebec Act, it was felt an olive branch should be extended to the Canadians in hope that they might assist them in their war for independence or at least not fight against them. The Continental Congress, that was now under the leadership of Freemason John Hancock of the St. Andrew Lodge, resolved that a committee of three be appointed to proceed to Canada, there to pursue such instructions as shall be given them by Congress. When John Hancock notified Charles Lee in New York a few few days later that the Canadian deputies would probably be ready in a short time. Lee replied, I should think that if some Jesuit or religious, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce that word, religious, a religious leader of any other order, but he he must be a man of liberal sentiments, in large mind, and a manifest friend 
to civil liberty. Could be found out and sent to Canada, he would be worth battalions to us. This thought struck me some time ago, and I am pleased to find from the conversation of Mr. Price and his fellow travelers that the thought was far from a wild one. Mr. Carroll has a relative who exactly answers the description. The Congress had already been struck with the same idea. On the 15th of February, they had further resolved that Charles Carroll of Carrollton be requested to prevail on Jesuit John Carroll, his cousin, to accompany the committee to Canada. Uh, moreover, John Adams wrote to his friend James Warner three days later that Dr. Franklin and Mr. Chase of Maryland and Mr. Charles Carroll of Carrollton are chosen a committee to go to Canada. Then he added, but we have done more. We have empowered the committee to take with them another gentleman of Maryland, Mr. John Carroll, a Roman Catholic priest and a Jesuit and a gentleman of learning and abilities. Now, the problem, what they're doing is that uh, the Canadian French Canadians are Catholics and they want to make kind of a peace treaty and uh, arrangement with them to stay out of the American Revolution as much as possible. And so they send a, basically a Catholic delegation up there. Charles Carroll, John Carroll, uh, Benjamin Franklin, and uh, Samuel Chase, I believe is his name. And they go up and negotiate this. If you want to read more about this trip, you can read it in the Ark and the Dove. It, I think it took six months or so. And I think uh, Benjamin Franklin became sick, and John Carroll took care of him for uh, uh, a month or two, I believe is what I remember reading that story. So these men were very close. I mean, if you're going to take a trip that far back then with three or four men together, they're going to get close together. And so uh, it's interesting that the Carols are uh, this influential in America to help uh, bring about treaties and agreements with other countries and yet they're not uh, hardly even mentioned or known in our standard history books. The mission did not accomplish its purpose of winning the Canadians as allies as they had hoped, but it does something else that becomes vitally important for unraveling a mystery and a blatant deception. It provides an insight and makes vividly clear that over 200 years ago, Freemasonic American revolutionary leaders could work in complete harmony together and feel the highest esteem for their Roman Catholic and Jesuit compatriots and then take upon themselves to send them as representatives for all Americans as their most honorable citizens. It begins to shed some light on how they could also cooperate in establishing the United States government together. It might even be said then, as the saying goes, that not everything is quite what it seems to appear to be, which also agrees with an enlightening statement of Scripture that says, the whole world is deceived. Uh, that's pretty accurate, I think, and all of us are deceived to some extent. Freemasonry, like the Knights of Templar, uh, like the Knights of Templar roots it sprouted from, is deep into the occult. But the roots go even deeper than that. They go straight to Rome, the fountainhead of all occultism. There's an interesting statement. The evidence that has been presented for giving support on an on, of an ongoing conspiracy with occult leanings during the American Revolution period blossoms into full bloom and becomes fully visible and quite bold after the American victory was declared. Any doubts will vanish as we venture into the last three chapters of this book. They will point out so that you may see literally, and if, if, so, if you care to do so, those landmarks that have been established as monuments to the occult, Freemasonry, and, Je and the Jesuits of Rome. 
Hardly before the peace treaty of Paris, ink was dry, the Carroll family and the Freemasons were making their influence being felt. For the site that was to be the seat of the new Republican government, the occultic street layout, and the Jesuit college that adjoined it. But more important than that, it will be shown that the sovereign God of the universe has given us a clear view 2,000 years ago of the role that Rome and the United States government, dominated by Rome, will play in the last days that today are rushing in upon us with breathtaking speed. I'm not sure I would totally agree with every detail of that last statement there, but basically I agree with that, that that's Daniel and uh, the Revelation uh, reveals to us uh, the Antichrist and his strategy throughout, throughout history. And we just need to be aware of that. That goes right back to Rome. So that's the end of this chapter. And uh you have any other thoughts about that, Lori, before I close out uh, this uh, this section right now? Yeah, just, just, just a couple. Um, you know, one of the things you were talking earlier about that, that Washington Monument, you know... And they were talking about how it was opened up and capped in 1889. That's a far piece after George is dead. You know, yeah. I mean, somebody could erect a statue of Baphomet and name it the, 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 the Lori statue. It doesn't mean I had anything to do with it. Yeah. And, and the reason I bring that up is we have to keep in mind, 1889 is quite a ways down in, in, in more forward in the future. This is after the Civil War and after the 1871 Act of the incorporation of the United States. And I just right. think there's a lot of this attributions with that and a lot of other things. The layout that you started talking about with D.C., this was done after much of this, but it's still pinned and attributed to Washington and that lot that happened – uh, after they were dead. So I, I just yeah. find that interesting. One, one other thing that I, I did want to put out is, let me just yeah. Let me just say something in response in uh, what, what you were saying, that it's easy for people to come in and claim uh, great people as theirs, you know. And they, uh, I mean, you go to the, if you've been and uh, seen pictures of the Capitol in Washington, D.C., up on the ceiling of the Capitol is this uh, very pagan-style uh, fresco up there, whatever you call that, that was painted by a uh, Roman Catholic uh, artist, just like over in the Vatican, some of the stuff over there. But that was, I think, in the 1850 period, in that time, you know, which is also... 70, at least 50 years after some of that, you know, I, it's hard to believe, and maybe maybe he would, but it's hard to believe Washington would, would uh, agree necessarily with being pictured as a god there, you know, like they do. So I don't know for sure. Well, it's, it's, I, some of these things is just like, it's easy for uh, people like the Masons to go back and claim totally uh, something on their side, you know, which might not necessarily be the case. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that then they had that name for that that rotunda you're talking about. It's a, an apocalypse something, not apocalypsis, but what, whatever, something like that. But, but freedom was actually put on in 1862 or three, I think. It was put on while the Civil War was going on. So again, yeah. that's that's, you know, and, and one of the things back with this Canada thing, uh, you, you know, another thing, again, and, and what you were saying, you know, it, it, to say something against a dead man, the dead man can't defend himself. And, and that's yeah. one of the reasons. And look, I don't mean to bunch, punch holes in this because I think there's a lot of information that most people are not aware of, but there are some, some, some glaring issues. And one of them is this with Canada. You know, we had a war, the War of 1812, which I had a professor on about that very subject. Uh, and one of the things was not just independence from England. The U.S. was looking to annex Canada after the Revolutionary War, and it was kind of an assumed that it would just be annexed and become part of the United States. So there was friction there, too. Again, yeah. so, to, so to put this all off as a, as a Masonic thing, I, I just don't think is exactly accurate. So 
Yeah, that's what I think too. That's not the only, uh, not the only thing in the mix there, you know. And to to present it like that, it, you you need to balance it with some other some other uh, things too. And I that's what I agree with that, you know. So yeah. I appreciate appreciate all your thoughts and uh, insights into this too. I I agree with with uh, some of that criticism of it you know but it's well, the thing the thing to me that this book has and walt and tom from uh all that they've taught us and appreciate all that they you know that they've taught uh, that i've learned from them is is just a aspect of history that i just it it it, it is it's just like a black hole here like the carols and yet it's right in your face like i've said before there's Right here in Montana, in the capital of Montana, up on the highest hill in Helena, Montana, just about, this beautiful college up there, Carroll College. And who would even know what's that about, you know, who that is? Without, I, I didn't have a clue before uh, I started listening to Walt and Tom, you know, about it. So, and this book goes through. That aspect of of history, which I think it is certainly in the mix there, and certainly today, from our condition today, that certainly was part of uh, the conspiracy that was going on, and it was a conspiracy, the Jesuits, you know. So go ahead, and anything else you wanted to say? Well, just just last minute thought, Alan, is you know, number one, like I said, I I, I again, I I don't mean to disparage that 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 book. But one of the reasons why I, I feel obliged to do so and inter- make some of these interjections is if we go with this assumption, and, and I think it's widespread out there that anybody's really done a, a cursory look, is that this whole American experiment, they even, they even call it that, and yes, I know there was reference to it, was all this planned conspiracy to be what it has become today from its inception, I think breeds apathy. And that's why I have that problem with it because – Instead of looking at it that, yes, there was a lot of turmoil and tumult going on, yes, the wrong people got the upper hand, and, and, and looking at it that way as opposed to this was the plan from the beginning, it's been in place uh, unopposed, unabashed for all these couple of 250 years, uh, it puts a different spin on it, and I just, I'm very concerned about this, this apathetic apathy that's bred from that staunch, again, that box, that broad brushstroke so i want to yeah. interject these I, and especially catch up from last week so thank you oh I, I appreciate you doing it i i totally agree with that that if you just if you just focus on the conspiracy this is one of the things that i mean years ago i just i just couldn't uh, i just couldn't uh, go along with it you know 30 years ago when i would read none dare call it uh, conspira- uh whatever those some of those were uh it was just this concept that this this conspiracy is so well organized so powerful so uh you know it's just so overwhelming it's it's just like a done deal that there's nothing you can do about it you just need to accept it and just hunker down in a hole somewhere and try, hopefully survive if you can you know that to me that's just not a biblical christian attitude i mean you read back through the bible jesus did not have that attitude moses and joshua and the great people they didn't have that attitude the protestant reformers did not have that attitude. they stood up and they fought for what was right because they believed that our god Jesus Christ and the Bible is the truth, and our God is behind us, and his authority is behind us. And that's what I I think all of this, that this dispensational futurism has just, it's destroyed that kind of faith and confidence in God and God's word and ability. You know, that's what I believe. So... um, well, Alan, that that that's exactly right. And and these people, these conspirators, their their strongest weapons are ignorance and apathy. 
Yeah. And, 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 and that's exactly what we have. And that's, that's the point that I was trying to make. And you, you summed it up there very nicely. So yeah, I, I think that's excellent. Thank you. Well, that's, I just, I think that's right. That's what I believe that, that Christian people have just rolled over. We've just uh, been taught this about Romans 13. We just need to roll over and whatever they, whatever they say or do, we just need to submit and go along with it and never fight anything, you know. Well, if that was the case, America never would have gotten here, you know. We would never have had, without the great Protestant reformers and all the fight and all the the conflict and the bloody battles that they went through and fought for us, the Scottish Covenanters and all of this uh, conflict, uh, striving uh, to serve God and to bring about the kingdom of God uh, in their area as much as they could, which is, I, I think that's what we need to be doing a lot more than what we do. So thanks for being with me today, and uh, I'll just uh, end it right there. Thank you very much for listening uh, today and uh, listening uh, in the future. Thanks very much. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.